Good morning. I want to say thank you to our team uh, for adjusting, right, being flexible. Um, I kind of like it when the enemy throws stuff at us and messes with us a little bit. I kind of like it because it forces us to go, no, what we're about is not necessarily lyrics on screen or a great sound system or whatever the case may be. We're going to worship regardless of what we have, right? And that's what they did. We had some technical difficulties this morning and they just rolled with us and did their best and got us lyric sheets. And so thank you. Thanks for leading through uh, a limp here this morning. Hey, I want to welcome you to South City Church. No, wait a second. I want to rephrase that. I want to welcome you to the location where South City Church meets. This is not the church. This is just a building, right? This location is not the church. It's just some land. You are the church. And I'm guilty. I, I say it every Sunday. Welcome to South City Church. And we have these phrases and this vernacular that we talk and that we speak of, and I don't think we're, we're understanding exactly what the church is. It saddens me a little bit. You know, in our culture, this kind of southern Christian, post-Christian culture, uh, often people just, just part of our, what we do, we go to church. We check it off the list because that's what people do. And even if you really don't go to church and somebody says, you go to church? Yeah, and they'll just tell you the last one they went to, right? I, I went there once, right? It's just kind of part of who we are in, in the South. George Barna says, we're not called to go to church. We're called to be the church. I want you to think about that, that comment for a minute. Because I think for so long, we have gone to church. For so long, we've done church. And I'm not sure how well we're being the church. I, many of you know I grew up in this church, in this building, in the church that met in this building. See, so it's easy to go back to it. I grew up here. Uh, everything that happened spiritually in my life till I was 21 happened really on this property and in my family and in the ministries of the church that was here. Uh, but sadly, as my family was a part of this church and, and I was growing up, I kind of learned that I could come into this building and I could, uh, into this atmosphere, and I could start conversations that kind of kept up with everybody else. I could seem like I was a part of what was going on and, and maybe even in leading in ways. I love to wear nice clothes. I love for people to go, man, that's a cool suit or that's a cool whatever, you know. Well, thanks. Appreciate it. But the sad reality of my life is that even those clothes were just a veneer. <laughs> they were just a representation of me hiding the truth of who I was. I wasn't a leader. I didn't speak things uh, in the culture of the church because I lived it. I was a fake. I was duplicitous. <laughs> that word in the dictionary means deceptive, deceitful, two-faced. That's who I was. I, I learned in this place to play church, to adapt to an environment, to wear a mask. And I'm not talking about the COVID mask. I'm talking about um, an invisible mask that I tried to put on so I could seem like something I wasn't. As soon as we left the church, I could take that off and then I could go back to whoever I wanted to be. You know anybody like that? You ever been? Thank you, brother. Yeah. It's easy. It's easy to think that, that we're supposed to put on something that we're not just so we can fit in. When really this ought to be the place where we can let guards down and pull masks off and away and say, help me to be who God wants me to be. I remember running into a, a kid from the youth group 
at a uh, local hangout here in Little Rock. We both attended the church. We both pretended to be Christians. And I remember we, we bumped into each other at a party. I didn't go to school with a lot of people from the church. So I could, it was very easy for me to live a life that didn't, didn't honor God at, at school. Well, I, we both have something in our hands, drinks in our hands we shouldn't be drinking. And we bump into each other and there was this pregnant moment. I'll never forget it. We just looked eye to eye. And we didn't say a word. And then we turned around and walked away. See, I not only was fake at church to fake that I was a Christian, I was faking at school to fake that I wasn't. What a mess my life was and how easy it is to to do this uh, false life, this false self. Friends, the church is not a place. It's not where you go to worship. It's not uh, where you go to connect. It's really not even where you can go to fake it. The church is a people, not a location, not a service. You shouldn't even be able to fake it in the church. I was thinking about this, like, if you go to a service and you can fake it, if you go to a place and you can be something that you're not, that's not the biblical church. This is what I mean. I have uh, three girls in my house. I, I, I love them dearly. I know them very, very well. Right? When, when they wake up in the morning, when they come home from school, they don't have to say a word. They can just... You know, it's the lift of an eyebrow. It's the body language or whatever. And I go, hey, what's, what's going on? I can say that to my wife and, and, and sometimes she'll not tell me right away or whatever the case may be, but I know something's not right, right? You can't fake it with family. You shouldn't be able to. <laughs> we know each other. We love each other. We know what makes each other tick. And so... In the church, we ought to be able to have that same kind of relationship. What's going on with you, man? You're not the same. You, something's on your heart. Something's on your mind. Let me know what's, what are you thinking? What are you feeling? The church ought to be a place literally where we can't fake it because we're a family of families. We know one another. Let me give you a little definition just of something I've been thinking through. The church is a group of people who aren't necessarily related by blood of kin or family. But we are gathered in relation to the blood of Jesus. They become a family of adopted sons and daughters of the king. We're a group of misfits whose only hope is in Jesus. His death, blood, and resurrection. They're sinners saved by grace and yet devoted to being obedient to Jesus. We're not perfect but we seek to be perfected by the grace of God, the accountability of each other. That is the church. And yet when you put that up against maybe what you've grown up believing the church is, and that's where we go to sing and do the thing and we go to hear the, we've, we've, we've drifted from the true biblical definition of the church. N.T. Wright says, the church is first and foremost a community a collection of people who belong to one another because they belong to God. The God we know in and through Jesus. The church exists for two closely correlated purposes, to worship God and to work for his kingdom in the world. You can and must worship and work for God's kingdom in private and in ways unique to yourself, but if the kingdom is to go forward rather than around and around in circles, we must work together as well as apart. 
together in worship, but individually as disciples of Jesus. See, he called people to himself. Right? We called them the disciples. But he didn't call them because what they had to bring, some gifts, some abilities, some talent. In fact, in Acts 4, the Sanhedrin's like, aren't these guys a bunch of fishermen? These are just ordinary guys. Why do they sound like they have wisdom? What? They know what they're talking about, right? And the Bible says it's because they had been with Jesus. These disciples didn't have anything to bring, and, and over these three years of ministry, Jesus invests in them so much that they're becoming more like him. They're looking more and more like him. There were times in Jesus' ministry where he had just a few. In the beginning, especially, he only had a few disciples with him. There's other times where Jesus speaks to thousands maybe 10, 15, even 20,000 people he's preaching to who would consider themselves his disciples. But what's interesting about Jesus and these, this big, huge group of disciples is that it seems like as he began to define uh, what discipleship truly is, that discipleship is a very serious thing, that it's an all-encompassing commitment to him. Thousands all of a sudden quickly became just a few again. <laughs> it's this very interesting thing. Jesus starts off with his disciples, can get to 20,000 disciples, and then before he ascends back into heaven, he's got 120 with him, right? Isn't that interesting? It's like, as he, as he defined it, as he helped people understand the seriousness of what it means to truly follow Jesus, people fell away. There's one story in John 6. He had fed 5,000, uh, and people were, they wanted to be around him. They wanted to follow him. They wanted to be near him. They wanted to see more miracles, really. And uh, so at the Sea of Galilee, it's really not that big of a place. You can go from shore to shore in not that much time. They were, they were going from one side of the Sea of Galilee to another just to be with him, to watch him. And he goes across when there's a big crowd. He says, let's go over there. So he goes away from the big crowd. Some of the big crowd follows him. People start asking him, are you going to do more miracles? And how can we see a sign that, that you're the Messiah? How can we, you know, Jesus, they said, well, you know, even in the desert, uh, Moses had manna come from heaven. Are you going to have something happen? And Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. And then he says something very provocative and, and hard to understand. <laughs> when he says, those who eat my flesh and drink my blood, they will be the ones that get eternal life. Well, some of you are kind of going, Ooh, right? That's what they did too. The big crowd goes, what did he say? I was with him up until the flesh and the blood part. We're not doing that. Honey, let's go. Get the kids, right? That's what happened. And literally many people go away from Jesus and they don't understand what he's trying to say is not Come take a bite out of my arm and drink my blood. He's not saying that. He's saying that all of your satisfaction, all of your sustenance, all that you need in life is in me. This is what Jesus was saying. And when you have me in your life, you have all that you need. That's what he's trying to say. And yet many people go away in that moment, and that huge crowd of disciples goes away. Some hang around. <laughs> uh, we have a story here in Matthew 18, if you want to follow him. I have a, a few different places where I'm going in the scriptures this morning. 
Matthew 18, there's a few disciples from the big group still hanging around. Uh, Matthew 8, verse 18. It says, now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go to the uh, other side. And a scribe came up to him and said, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. That sounds pretty serious, doesn't it? I'm going to follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Still following? You still coming? Let's go. Verse 21, another disciple said to him, Lord, let me first go bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. There's just this sense that Jesus, as he defines what discipleship is, it means more than maybe what you think it means. It's more serious, maybe than the way you're thinking it is. In other words, the first guy chooses comfort and control. I don't know where we're staying. There's no place to lay my head. I'm not, no thanks. If I can't control this, if I can't be in control, if I can't have some level of comfort in my life, I'm out. All too telling even of the American church. The next guy says he's going to choose his family and his future. That was actually a popular phrase. I need to go bury my father. It didn't mean that his father had even died. It just means I need to be around my father so when he dies, I get his inheritance. That's what it meant. So he's worried about family and he's worried about future. One chooses comfort and control over Jesus, and another chooses family and future over Jesus. Jesus continually defines discipleship as sacrifice and commitment. As sacrifice and commitment. Do we define it as such? So you get the sense in this little story that these disciples, they ask these questions, but then they went away. We don't hear about them again. We we get a sense that I think... Uh, Matthew's basically helping us understand they chose something else. These wannabe disciples did not choose Jesus. There's another story in in, uh, Mark 10 about a guy that you may be familiar with. We call him the rich young ruler. Each gospel gives him one of those titles. One's rich, one's young, and one that he's a ruler. But this guy comes to Jesus and he, he, he seems to be religious, and he says to Jesus, what must I do to in- inherit eternal life? What, what can I do? Jesus had a, an ability to look into people's hearts and see the place where they were struggling, where they, they had a lack of faith. And so Jesus says, yeah, just go sell all that you have, give it to the poor, follow me, right? So Jesus tells him to do this, And and the story says that the man goes away saddened. He's depressed. He's sad. Why? Because he chose his wealth over Jesus. Jesus pressed into the false motives of people, and he does it today. What's really most important in your life? What's the thing that you really worship the most? The Bible calls these things, if they're not Jesus, calls them idols. An idol is something you're devoted to more than Jesus, something you love more than Jesus, something that's the most important thing in your life over Jesus. In each of these stories, each of these disciples, 
we see wasn't serious enough, wasn't committed, wasn't willing to sacrifice to make Jesus the most important thing in their lives. So I, I have to ask you this question this morning. What's the most important thing in your life? See, along with my story of my uh, false self, my duplicity, I would have sat where you're sitting on Jesus, man, and then walked out of here and it wouldn't have been proven in my life. Look what Jesus says in Luke 14, 33. He says, so therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Does that sound serious to you? Does that sound like you think Jesus means for you to take this relationship with him seriously? Renounce all you have or you can't be my disciple. Does it mean we can't have things? Does it mean we can't have homes? We can't have clothes? We can't have... No, it's saying I have to be more important than those things. I have to be first or they're idols. Jesus even warns church people to be careful that they're not deceived into thinking that they've done something that will get them into heaven. This is sort of a scary verse. Matthew 7, verse 21 says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do many mighty works in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That is a frightening verse, frightening text. Because it says that we can live our lives in such a way that we're involved in church and we're leaders and we do many mighty works for God and yet not know Jesus. He makes this differentiation of of being a disciple is somebody who proves it in their lives. They do the will of the Father. That's who I know. When Jesus has changed your heart, then you begin to do the will of the Father. So the question I have for us this morning is this. What does it mean to truly be a disciple of Jesus? Students, I would really ask you to, to ask this question. What does it mean for me to be a disciple of Jesus? All of us, not just to attend a church, to come to a location or a service. What does it mean for me to be a disciple? Or maybe the best way to look at it this morning is, what, what does it look like to not be a disciple? Let's go down that list first. To not be a disciple uh, means that you just attend a service. Kind of like when you stand in a building like this, a church, all of a sudden you're magically a disciple. In the same way that you can't stand in a garage and magically be a car, right? An old evangelist said that. I think it's awesome. You don't just show up and go, I'm a disciple now. No. Even if your name is on a roll, if you're, we call them partners here at South City, if you're a member of a church, a partner, even then, that doesn't make you a disciple. Depending on someone else's faith, like your mom and your dad, well, my mom and dad, they love the Lord, and we went to church all every Sunday, and so I guess I'm a, no, you're not a disciple based on your mom and dad. In fact, there's a saying that says, God has no grandchildren. 
You have to have your own faith. You have to choose for yourself if you know Jesus, if you love him, if you're gonna serve him, if you're gonna do the will of the Father. It's your choice. No passing down, no hand-me-downs of faith. It's not just the title, like I myself, I called myself a Christian, but the substance of Christianity was not in my life. You can't call yourself a Christian if you're not in Christ. And yet many people do. You can't just be a rule follower like the Pharisees were. Right? They, they love to just follow the rules, therefore I'm good to go. Man, I did that, I'm good to go. That's what the rich young ruler did. He thought he had covered all, the, all of his bases. I've done it all, I'm ready to go. Well, he hadn't. It wasn't just about following rules. When we obey Jesus, that motive ought to come from love, not obligation and duty. When we love the Lord, we want to be obedient to him. When we love God, we want to honor him with our lives and the decisions that we make. Matt Chandler said this in a message recently. Pastor of Village Church in, in Dallas area, he said, to be a disciple of Jesus Christ means not that we believe some things intellectually, but that we have surrendered our lives over to his lordship. Anything less than that is not biblical Christianity. It is something of your imagination. I'll say it again. It's not some, something, some things we believe intellectually. It's that we have surrendered our lives over to the lordship of Jesus. Anything less than that is not biblical Christianity. You can't be a grace abuser, right? There's one thing about trying to just be a rule follower. On the other end, there's people who are just grace abusers. In college, I've told this before, but in college there was a guy that was a friend of mine, and I looked up to him, and he kept telling me, man, just live however you want. God's forgiven you. That's good enough. I remember kind of going, I don't, I don't think that's right, <laughs> you know? Of course it's not right. Paul even said, well, what should we do? Should we go on sinning? That grace should abound? He said, of course not. God wants us to live a life that honors him. I love the story of, of the woman caught in the act of adultery. And, and those, Jesus says, those without sin in their lives cast the first stone and rocks begin to fall and these Pharisees begin to go away. And Jesus looks down at this one and says, where are your accusers? And he says, neither do I condemn you. In other words, I'm a God of grace. Regardless of what you've done, regardless of the sin in your life, regardless of the mistakes you've made, I forgive you. Isn't that beautiful? Praise God in my life that he has said, I forgive you. But he doesn't stop there. Then he says to the woman, now go and sin no more. Right? It's not just, I forgive you, go do whatever. No, I forgive you. Neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. God is a God of grace and truth. We can't be a grace abuser and think that we are a disciple of Jesus. 1 Peter 1, 16, the Lord says, be holy as I am holy. And it should be on our hearts as disciples of Jesus to be obedient and serve him. You can't be someone who's removed from church family and call yourself a disciple. You know some people like that? They are removed from the family of God in church, and yet they go, well, I'll tell you where my church is. My church is on the golf course. My church is at the lake. My church, what is this my church stuff, right? There's nowhere in scripture. An individual faith 
that's tried, that, that someone tries to live outside of the family of God is not discipleship. In fact, you cannot live an obedient life in Christ apart from life in the body. Did you know that? You can't do it. God has designed this walk of faith to be done together. It is not an individual faith. You can't be a disciple if you live in outright, habitual, public or private sin without repentance or remorse. You can't be a disciple. If there's some, some sin in your life that is an ongoing, habitual, you've not addressed it, you're not really remorseful for it, you're not repentant of it, whether it be public or private, maybe you're the only one who knows about it, but you, you don't seek repentance, you don't, seek, you don't have a remorseful spirit, you're not a disciple of Jesus. But on the other hand, you can't say, I'm a Christian and I've got it figured out, I'm perfect. I don't have sin in my life. If you ever hear a Christian say that, no, they're not a disciple. Christians aren't perfect. There is sin in our lives that Christ has forgiven and we ought to be seeking for the Lord to help us stop so that we can be holy as God is holy. That's what an accountable church relationship can do. So what does it look like to be a disciple of Jesus? This morning, if you've got uh, your little field guide or your little notebook, I'd love for you to write these down. A disciple, here's the first one, a disciple seeks to be Christ-like. I mean, if you want to know if you're a disciple, let's, let's see how you fit in these four areas of discipleship. Number one, a disciple seeks to be Christ-like. You can't be a disciple of Jesus and not know Jesus as your Savior. A disciple, the word disciple literally just means a follower, a learner, a student of Jesus and his word. It means that we continually grow. We never graduate from discipleship until we go to heaven. You have to know Christ. You also have to be actively seeking to be obedient to God and to serve the Lord. In the book of James, chapter 2, verse 19, James says, oh, you say you believe God. That's good. Even demons believe and they shudder. Right? It's not just about what you believe. It's about that our lives show that we believe. They go together. When God changes us, he changes us. Not, I just prayed some prayer. No, we pray prayers from, from authentic places in our hearts where then God redeems us. We repent, and repentance means we change. Some say that uh, they believe. This, I was one of these. I said I believed, and my life said something different. I said I believe in Jesus. I said I'm a Christian, and my life showed something different of me. Jesus said, if you love my commands, if you love me, obey my commands. Right? John 14, 21, John 15, 14. If you love me, obey me. If you want to be a disciple, that's somebody who's committed to knowing God's word. And obeying God's word, seeking to grow. There is an epidemic going on right now of a lack of, of knowledge of Scripture. In the church, not just in the world, in the church, we don't know God's word. I saw a study recently that said 60% of Christians from the ages of 18 to 39, 60% don't believe Jesus is the only way to salvation. I would say they're not Christians then, right? 
Acts 4, Peter said, Jesus is the only name under heaven by which we, we may be saved. The only name. Jesus himself said, I'm the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but by me. This is an exclusive gospel in that we can only know the Father through Jesus. There is no other way. There is no other way. And yet, millennials and Gen Z from 18 to 39, 60% of, of people that call themselves Christians say it's not the only way. That, that's a lack of biblical knowledge. One in 20 Americans believe, uh, one in 20 believe in the biblical definitions of Christianity, the true biblical definitions. We're in an epidemic. John 8, 31 says, so Jesus said to the Jews, who had believed him, I love this, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. If you live, what, let me ask this question, what do you abide in right now? What are the things, think about it, what, what do I abide in? Some of you abide in fishing. You live and breathe fishing, that's okay. So did Peter, Andrew, James and John. Some of you abide in, in, in other things that are, that's your deal. But we need to abide in God's word. We need to know it. We need to be obedient to it. To be a disciple is someone who is connected to God in prayer and in awe of God in worship. We can't do it on our own. Why would we even try? We need to spend time with the Lord. We need to hear from him. We need to speak to him. We need to honor him. We need to follow him. You're connected to God in prayer continually, the Bible says. Just be praying continually, but also in awe of God in worship. And worship is, and we talk about this in our What's Next group, but worship is not just what we did this morning. It's not just music. Right? Romans 12 says, your worship ought to be your sacrificial living for Christ. That's what worship is. In awe of God, whether it be music, whether it be how we live, but that our worship, that we be connected to God in worship. John 10, 27 says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. If you know Christ, he is your shepherd, then you ought to be able to hear his voice. Through his word, through prayer, and you follow him. Somebody who's a disciple should exhibit the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5.22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. This is interesting in this section in, in Galatians. Right before this, Paul lays out what it looks like to live a life apart from Christ. And then here he lays out what it looks like to have a life as a disciple, who, somebody who is in Christ. And if you belong to Christ, you've crucified those lifestyles, those passions, and now these things ought to be in your life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. 
That's what a disciple is. A disciple is somebody who seeks to love the Lord with all of their heart, with all of their soul, with all their mind, with all their strength, and to love their neighbor as their self. That's what Jesus said when they asked him, what's the most important commandment of these 613 commandments? Jesus said, here's, here's, here's the two. Love the Lord with everything you are. So just show up on Sunday at 1030. You're not going to be done at about noon. Are we good? Does that, that sound consistent? <laughs> okay, well, what if I show up at 1030, I'm, I'm done about noon. I show up at Citigroup, I'm done uh, an hour and a half later. That's three hours in the week. Are we good? Love the Lord with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. That's what it looks like to seek Jesus as a disciple. Here's the second thing. A disciple is committed to Jesus. When I think about commitment right now, I think about Afghan believers who are in Afghanistan, who don't know if they're going to live another day. Many who have already been martyred. And they said, I would rather die with Jesus than try and live here without him. That's commitment. That's loving the Lord with everything you are and everything you have. God, I'd rather die. Yes, I'll stand for Jesus. That was Jesus' definition of discipleship. Luke 9, 23, and he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. This is Jesus' definition. But how often are we denying ourselves? But I, I don't really feel like going this morning. It's been a long day. I've had a hard time. It's, uh. We deny ourselves to honor Christ. And we take up this death instrument of the cross in order to follow him every single day. To be committed to Jesus means that you, you love him more than you love anyone or anything. Kind of like the examples I gave a little bit ago with the disciples who came to Jesus and one chose control and comfort and the other chose family and future and the other chose wealth. Many of us choose other things than Jesus, but he makes it very clear here. Matthew 10, 37, he says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever, lo whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. When Lori and I had Daisy Joy, uh, before we had her, we had been infertile for 12 years. So when she got here, uh, she was pretty special to us, like, oh, like the Lion King moment, you know. We were, I, I was so afraid of, of something happening to her. And I literally got kind of neurotic about it. I started playing out these narratives in my mind of bad things that could happen. And, and she became more important to me than Jesus. I struggle with it still. I love my kids but I can't love them more than Jesus. See, it's a paradox. Many of us struggle 
for what matters in life. We, 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 we think, hey, if I just have the right job, then I'll be happy. I'll fill this place in my heart. If I just have enough money, I will be okay. We'll make it. If I can just do this or if I can just do that, I'll be satisfied. But the paradox is, is when you chase for those things, you actually lose your life. What matters most? Jesus said, no, lose your life to me and you will actually find it and I'll give you life abundantly. Don't look for life in the things that won't give you life. Look for the one who, who can only give you life. Someone who's a disciple endures suffering and persecution with purpose and peace and joy. This is kind of a hard one to teach because as we sit here in this lovely air-conditioned nicely lighted, and we get to choose whether it's darker or lighter, right? <laughs> we have all these options, and I say, have joy in persecution and suffering. <laughs> and I think about people around the world who truly are suffering, thousands of believers in Jesus who are dying for their faith in Nigeria. The, the underground church dying in Afghanistan, in China, people being punished, prisoned for life for their faith in Christ. but we don't get out of it just because we live in America. Jesus said, if you know me, you will be persecuted. If you know me, you will suffer. How's that suffering going? Are we suffering? What does suffering even look like to the American believer? What does sacrifice even look like to the American believer? Someone who gives of their time and their resources as a disciple of Jesus. To be a disciple, it's not just a matter of a title or a little bit of, uh, of moments here. It's, it's all-encompassing. It's a commitment. It's sacrifice. It's obedience. But when you're a disciple of Jesus, you're willing to serve. By the way, I'll just put a little commercial in here. We got lots of places you can serve. Our children's ministry needs help in, in serving. Youth ministry, worship ministry, tech ministry, you name it ministry, we need your help. And the disciple goes, where do you need me? Where can I go? You point the way. And by the way, here's some money to do that ministry. That's what discipleship looks like. We give of our time, of our resources, because we want to honor and obey God and his word. Here's the third thing I want you to see about a, a disciple. A disciple lives in community. We mentioned this earlier. But somebody who's a disciple understands that their faith is not lived alone. It has to be lived among other believers. There's no life in Christ apart from being connected to his church. But sadly, so many people in our world and our culture think it's an option. I get to choose this or choose that or I just won't choose. We need to understand through biblical knowledge that is not an option for the disciple of Jesus. Amen. <laughs> Friends, as disciples of Jesus, we intentionally remain under authority, under accountability to others who intentionally embrace us and we intentionally embrace them because we know what it means to be a family of families. Now listen, I want to say this to us as well as to those people who are watching. Um, 
this has not been easy through COVID. I know that. COVID has, has really been a challenge for believers and for all of us. But I just want to say this in love, okay? Friends, we cannot choose fear and control over obedience to God's word. Now, I'm not saying you, you, you can't distance and honor God. You can But what we have to do as believers is we have to be intentional to walk life with other people in accountability, in confession, in service, caring for one another. That is the life of Christ. And COVID or nothing else should stop it. Because church is not a service. Church is a people walking life together to know Jesus and to make him known. A disciple who lives in community is willing to submit themselves to God, the leaders, uh, leaders and other believers. Hebrew thir- Hebrews 13, 17 says this. And can I just acknowledge the elephant in the room? This is weird to teach. It's hard to teach this. But in obedience to God, I will teach it, right? And it says this. Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy, not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. I love that our church is elder-led. I'm not a single leader. We have four pastors. We have five elders. Those are your godly leaders of this church. And we submit ourselves, myself included, to them. And we submit ourselves, uh, Ephesians 5 says, one to another in the body of Christ. That's what it means to live in community doesn't do you any good to, to try to get outside of that. It says it's no advantage to you. We're not controlling. We want to serve you. We want to love you. We want to be there for you. We want to bring you to Jesus. That is the heart of your leaders and elders. Here's the last thing I'd like to bring to your attention as a disciple. A disciple is engaged in the Great Commission. A disciple is Christ-like. A disciple is committed to Jesus. There's nothing more important. The disciple lives his life in community, and the disciple is engaged in the great commission of Jesus. Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Hear me, friends. If you're a disciple of Jesus, he has empowered you with his spirit to take his gospel everywhere you go all the way to Kabul, Afghanistan. The spirit of the living God is in those believers, witnessing, standing and being a witness, even at their death. The story of believers from Acts 1 and Acts 2, in the upper room, 120 believers, the number I referenced a minute ago, 120 believers in this room. The Bible says when the Holy Spirit came upon them in Acts 2, all of them received the Holy Spirit. That's important, friends. It didn't say the the, uh, disciples, the leaders, those 12, those 11 at the time or whatever. No. All of them, all 120, received the Holy Spirit. Well, why did Jesus send the Holy Spirit? Let me read it to you again. You will receive the Holy Spirit, all of you, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. All believers in Jesus are sent on mission to make him known. 
not just missionaries. By the way, that's what you are. Not just preachers, not just church staff and elders. Every believer of Jesus is sent on mission to make him known. We don't have an option to not be engaged in the mission of Jesus. It's not an option for the believer. If you know him as your savior, you're sent. And God's expectation of his disciples is to take this truth to the world. Over the next several weeks, we're going to be talking about how we do that. What's that look like? Are we doing it? How can we learn to do it? Can we be trained to do it? Can I just say this as I close? I'm so unbelievably grateful that God in his mercy loved a fake kid. I'm so unbelievably thankful that God saw past a false facade to the brokenness of my heart, that he showed a mirror to me and said, this is really who you are. And I wasn't a Christian. And I wasn't living for Christ. Even though I believe some of the things the church said, sure. But I wasn't a disciple of Jesus. I'm so grateful. Even on our doors back there, it says that we want to be authentic disciples who make disciples. Is that you today? Are you an authentic disciple of Jesus You want to be Christ-like. You want to know him. You want to be committed to him regardless of what's going on in your life. You're willing to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him as a Christ follower. You're committed. You live in community because this is how God trains us and molds us and reminds us who we are and what our mission is. And you're, you're committed to the mission of Jesus. Because I know him, I will go. Listen, it's the same grace that Jesus saves us is the same grace, the same mercy that he keeps us as his disciples. And this morning, if you've identified with me and who I've been and struggled still to be, and maybe there's some disobedience in your life, maybe you've put a, a label on your name, Christian, and yet your life doesn't define it, Biblically. Maybe you've been not denying yourself. You've been doing whatever you want to do. Maybe there's not change in your soul. Can I just can I just encourage you this morning? Come and repent. Is there one area that you've not been doing? Is there one area that you've been lax in? Maybe we know how to worship. Maybe you even enjoy going to group and you, you like sharing your life with people. But I don't know what mission is about. May we come and repent. God, forgive us. Teach us what it means to be true disciples of Jesus, to know him and make him known. Not to play church. Not to just be in a location and say we were there. No, God's calling us to be his church. And some change has to happen in me and in you. Won't you pray with me this morning? God, please forgive us, Lord. Forgive us for saying one thing and doing another. Forgive us for just following in tradition to locations, to buildings, to organizations. 
and not truly being your disciples. God, help us to understand the definition of discipleship is sacrifice and commitment to you, Lord, to knowing you, to living life with other people, to making you known. God, my prayer that if there's one person in this building today that doesn't know you, Jesus, as their Savior, would they come to this altar and repent? Lord, would they come talk to one of our elders and, and say, I need to know Jesus. How do I do that? God, if there's one person here, maybe they've been involved in the church for 50 years, and they don't want to get to this place where they say, Lord, Lord, and you say, I never knew you. God, would you bring them to this altar? and help them to repent, to know you, Jesus. And make us disciples, Lord, who get it, who understand it, and we're about this life in Jesus. Lord, we give you this time, I pray that your Holy Spirit would move among us. Even as Leslie prayed when we began, Lord, would you draw people to yourself? It's the only way that we can change, Lord. Our true salvation can happen as if you draw us. We pray that in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Listen, if God is drawing your heart in repentance, in salvation, in obedience, whatever it is, this altar's open. You don't even have to come to the altar. If you don't want to, you could stay right there if you're serious about it. And you can just commit your heart and life and surrender to Jesus. Would you do that right now? Stand with us as we worship.